Psalm 11. This is the inerrant word intended for his church. To the chief musician, Psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Amen. Father God, I thank you for this scripture that our family has been memorizing. It's a scripture that is dear to my heart. I pray that it would become something that is dear to each one of our hearts in this congregation. I pray that you would anoint my lips, enable me to uh, preach your word faithfully, and enable each one of us, Father, to be hearers and doers and lovers of that word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have any of you never been tempted to bail out or escape from your responsibilities? I thought so. You're all guilty. <laughs> if I said it the other way around, there wouldn't have been any hands either, right? <laughs> but uh, you're the rare person if uh, you've never been at least tempted to... Uh, try to escape from uh, the responsibilities that the Lord has given to you. And even a solid, mature person like David was on occasion tempted that way. There's another psalm where he explicitly says so. Some people think it's hinted at here with the use of the word soul. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, as if there's something inside of him that uh, this is appealing to? But whether that's the case or not, it clearly is the case that his friends were tempted to escape uh, to their mountain. The word your in your mountain is plural. Uh, it's uh, you all, but it wasn't just being addressed to David. Now that means that each one of them had either a literal mountain or some metaphorical mountain that they uh, were wanting to escape to. We're not told exactly what those metaphorical mountains might be, and I take it as a metaphor, not as a, a literal thing. Uh, but it could be either way. It really doesn't matter. But I suspect every one of us has our own unique mountains that we have a tendency to at least be tempted uh, to flee to. Uh, maybe when the pressure gets high, you resort to uh, too much television watching or snacking or cigarettes. You may have some other mountains of refuge. Uh, when culture seems hard to cope with, you might have some theological escapisms. Uh, I remember when I was a, a child, <clears throat> there were some really stressful things that I wasn't prepared for, some responsibilities uh, like uh, exams that I hadn't studied for and things like that. And I remember vividly praying to the Lord, please let the rapture happen now <laughs> so that I can escape from my responsibilities. And it's not just kids that feel that way. I know many an adult who has said, why should I bother doing that? You know, maybe providing for their retirement or some long-term planning or some other responsibility that takes 
some planning for the future. Hey, they say Christ is coming back any time. Why should I do X, Y, and Z? But that is a form of using theology as an escape. A divorce is sometimes a form of escapism, trying to walk away from the problem rather than trying to work on the problem. Uh, sometimes people give as their reason for entertainment that, hey, it's a great escape. You've probably heard that. Drugs are a form of escape. I'm convinced our culture is saturated in different forms of escapism, and I am convinced that the Church of Jesus Christ has bought into that philosophy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, first of all, very briefly give three reasons that the uh, friends of David gave as to why he needs to engage in escapism, and then we'll spend most of the time looking at his answers to them. But in order to be able to see this, you're going to have to change the, way, the place where the quotation marks end. And just keep in mind, quotation marks aren't in the Hebrew, okay? And usually it's pretty obvious what uh, is being said. Sometimes you have to guess as to where the end uh, fits. But if you've got a New King James Bible, like I do here, what the friends say is only in verse 1. It's the phrase, flee as a bird to your mountain. But in the NIV, in the New American Standard Bible, another, a number of other modern versions, <clears throat> the quotation goes all the way down to the end of verse 3. And I think for several reasons, uh, this is the better way to go. And so the word for in verse 2 is the start of their friend's reasons why he should escape. And I think in a moment you'll see why this really is the better uh, uh, interpretation of this passage. The first argument that David's friends gave is in verse 2. They say, For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string. The first most obvious reason why we want to escape is we're coming under attack, and it hurts. Uh, people are shooting at us. Uh, maybe it's uh, not a literal arrow that's flying at you. Maybe the, the, the husband and the, the kids and the dog have all ganged up on you and you're just feeling beat up and you're feeling like you want to bail or you at least want to sleep on the couch. You want to escape from the pressure uh, that people are putting on you. Or maybe people have criticized your ideas in the committee and you feel like, well, I'm resigning from this committee if they're not going to listen to my ideas. Uh, maybe the pressure is getting too much at work and you're wanting to quit. Whether it's a retreat from your battle against sin, a retreat from social responsibilities, maybe your duties from the Great Commission, I think the first and most obvious reason that we want to escape is it's painful. We're getting shot at. People are opposed to us. And if we are not motivated by the kinds of things that David is motivated by, we're going to very easily succumb to that desire. The second reason for escapism is confusion. Look at verse 2. He says, For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string. Here's the phrase, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Now, if you look in the margin, you'll say it's, uh, see that it's literally they shoot in the darkness. Now, it's bad enough to have fear, which is generated by that first point. When people are shooting at you, you know, it, it is something that's fearful. But if you're in the dark as well... If you're confused about what's going on, that is doubly uh, motivating to escape from uh, the situation. <clears throat> How many times do people give up just because of that? If you look at David's life, toward the end of his uh, reign, Absalom takes over, and he was completely blindsided. It came out of the dark. He hadn't realized that all this time, Absalom has been undermining him, and he was thinking, what is going on here? I put my trust in him. 
why have I gotten stabbed in the back? He was completely taken off guard because he had been shot in the dark. Um, we aren't told what the context for this psalm is, but I think many of you have experienced that reason. You've been stabbed in the back. The third reason for escapism is in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a feeling of helplessness. There's not a thing we can do if the foundations are destroyed. Now, many people quote that as if it's the words of David rather than the words of David's friends that are being opposed, and they almost give up. They say there's no point in trying to do anything here in America because the foundations have been destroyed. There's nothing that the righteous can do. But is that true? Is that really true? Because if that's true, the implication is that if the power of the government is not behind you, then there's no way that the Christianity is going to win. If the media is not behind you, your cause is hopeless. Uh, it, it assumes that if the judges are not on your side, you're never going to win the battle against abortion. But that's the lie of the devil. Every country that Christianity has in the past taken over, the foundations were destroyed, right? And yet Christianity continued to triumph. And sure, the foundations have been destroyed in America, but that in no way annuls Christ's promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It does not negate Acts chapter 1, verse 8 that says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be empowered and it's on the basis of that that you go out and disciple the nations. Okay, so we need to not see this as an excuse to give up. We need to see this as one of the reasons that the friends were giving as to why we've got to escape. We can't go on and fight like this, David. And David says, no, I am not buying into that at all. And if you look at the beginning of verse 11, you see that it was faith that was David's ability to withstand these temptations to flee. Verse 1 says, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee? His faith, his faith was incompatible with escapism. And in verses 4 through 7, faith laid hold of six invisible things, six invisible things that gave him the backbone to persevere. And so if, if faith is the key, in the Lord I put my trust, I think we need to define faith briefly. Hebrews 11, verse 1, gives the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, there's a translation that has it, and I think it draws out the Greek behind it because they are legal terms that are being used. It has it, faith is the title deed of things hoped for and the court evidence of things not seen. Now, let me try to illustrate what that means. This maybe isn't the greatest illustration in the world, but it might help a little bit. Let's say that there was a British businessman who wanted to expand into the American market and uh, he had heard about this uh, mall called Crossroads that's up for sale. It's not really, but uh, uh, he got information on it and uh, there was, uh, he sent his agents out there to negotiate price and everything. And they're emailing all kinds of evidence and information as to why this mall really is going to be a great deal for this businessman to be involved in. Until he gets the title deed into his hand, he doesn't dare go and invest all kinds of money in improve improvements, tearing down buildings, building other buildings, because despite the best negotiations, the deal might fall through. But once he gets the title deed in his hand, he is the owner of that property. Based on that title deed and all of the evidence that's been emailed to him, 
He can go in there, he can spend $15 million, he can tear down buildings, build them up. He maybe has never seen that property, and yet he has an absolute confidence this is his, and he's going to be able to use it, and he's going to be able to uh, improve upon it. Well, that is what faith is like. And I want you to realize that faith is not something where we create things out of thin air. That's the problem with the name it and claim it uh, view of, of faith. And there's some of them actually that have gone back away from that. There's some word of faith leaders now who are really right on the money in terms of this. But in the olden days, they would say that it's almost like we are, are, are gods. We can create things by our faith. No, our faith cannot create a thing. What faith does is it lays hold of things that God has already created. Um, if you remember in the Hebrews 11 verse 1 passage, it says, faith is the, the um, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, so there's already things out there, and they're the promises of God, they're the things that God has planned and established for this world. So we're not creating anything. All we are doing is we are laying claim to God's promises, the things that are in the eternal, invisible, unseen, and we are bringing them into manifestation in space-time history. Does that make sense? For example, the Scripture indicates in Ephesians that we were created for good works which God prepared from before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Okay? They're already created before the foundation of the world. They are things. They are realities that faith is laying hold of as we walk into the good works God had planned for him. And so just as the businessman can move things onto Dodge Street and immediately get his um, you know, business going on the basis of the title deed, these six things that we're going to look at right now are things that motivated David and he was able to lay claim to. First, that God is presently ruling and he is in absolute, complete control. Look at verse 4. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. And that word temple, by the way, is not the ordinary word for temple that you find in the Old Testament. Uh, almost everywhere else it's translated as palace. Now, the temple was a palace, and so he's referring to the temple in heaven. But literally it says, the Lord is in his holy palace, the Lord's throne is in heaven. So what he is saying here is that God rules. Now his soul, his mind might be telling him, no, God is not in control, God's not ruling, everything is falling apart, it looks like Satan is in control, that he's alive and well on planet earth. But David resists because he knows that there are realities that are unseen based on the promises of God, and he lays claim to that, the calm, the turmoil in his spirit, and he says, no way. God is in his palace, not Satan. God is on the throne, not Satan. And based on that, it affects his behavior. It ought to be very helpful for us when we, for example, are frustrated uh, with our spouse or our neighbor or some other person that you've got a frustration with. And you need to ask yourself, uh, who is the one who changes hearts? I can't change a person's heart. People think, you know, that's the whole pastor's business. No, that is not the pastor's business. The pastor's business is to be faithful, to bring the word, to love, to minister, to serve. Only God can change the heart uh, of another individual. And yet how many of us try to play God by changing other people's hearts and we're taking upon ourselves a load of providence that our shoulders are not broad enough to bear? We cannot do that. 
What God has called us to do is to be faithful to our responsibilities and to leave the results up to God. And I think many of our frustrations come because we're playing God, okay? We're trying to do the things God is. God's, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility, no matter how bad your neighbor is, is to love them, to serve them, to speak God's word. Yes, sometimes to speak a rebuke, but it's to do your responsibility and trust God to do his work. Now, the tangible benefit of believing that God's rules is not just psychological and inward. When we believe that God is on the throne, it gives us the faith to make big petitions of the Lord, to expect things that everybody else thinks are weird or ridiculous. Uh, boy, make your prayer requests a little bit lower. But God is honored when our, our, our requests are big. Um, it helps us to enter into the works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's this kind of faith that enables us, as Ephesians says, to be caught up with Christ in the heavenlies, to be seated with Him in the heavenlies. And um, <clears throat> because we hold our title deed there, we gain a new authority over demons that we never had before. We gain a new authority in our prayer life we never had before, a, a royal confidence that we did not have. And so it's an invisible thing, but faith is the evidence of things not seen. Let me read you some a radical scripture here. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. That's pretty radical to say, you know, is there some sense in which we have life and death in our hands? And he says, yes, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, God is the one who does it from beginning to end, but faith is the thing that lays hold of God's, God's blessings, his, his, his empowerment. Now, he next reminds us and reminds himself that God knows all about what is going on. Verse 4, second part. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. David's friends want to bail out, we saw already, because of confusion, because they're in the darkness. They can't see. But David reminds them that we can go to the one who does see. We can go to the one who knows everything from the beginning to the end. Now, there is a subjective benefit to this. The subjective side is that it brings peace to us when we realize that the one who worked out all of the tiny details in the book of Esther is also working all things together for our good. It can enable us to rest in Him. But objectively, it helps us as well because when we lack wisdom, we can go to the one who does see. James promises us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and it will be given to him. Okay? We can ask wisdom from God. And I don't know how many times the Lord has blessed me with wisdom and insight that I could not have had on my own. But... When by faith we lay claim to things that are invisible that we don't see, we bring it into space-time history. We don't create it. We simply embrace it. And so why would we uh, try to escape when we know the God who knows everything? Thirdly, David's faith laid hold of the fact that God can distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. If you were in David's shoes, I think you would have been frustrated at the end of your life not knowing who to trust. Uh, you know, during that time with Absalom, he didn't know who were his friends and uh, who were his enemies, but he could go to the God who did 
was able to distinguish. And what this helps us with is to realize God knows the righteous, He knows the wicked, He knows each one, that we're not just some cog in, you know, a massive cosmic machine. God loves us and He knows us each individual. Um, and God distinguishes. We may not be able to distinguish, but we can go to the God who does distinguish and who does know. Some people speak of this, some charismatics speak of this as the witness of the Spirit. Some people just speak of insight, discernment, whatever language you want to use, we can go to the God who discerns. Now, the same verse gives a fourth point, and that is that God hates evil in this world. Uh, <clears throat> he says, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates now, I love the doctrine of God's hatred. I love the attribute of God's hatred because it means to me that God is not apathetic about the evil that's going on in America. He's motivated. He hates this far more than we do. You know, we, we may hate the evil that's going on and think, God, you don't care. And David reminds himself, no, God cares about the problems that are happening in our society and the evils and the persecutions that are coming against you. He hates those far more than you do. And so it's an encouragement to our hearts that the Lord God uh, does indeed uh, hate evil. <clears throat> now, uh, David claims this not just in general, but he claims God's hatred of evil for this particular situation. He says, Lord, I am so thankful that you hate what is going on right here, and I stand in the comfort of your hatred for evil. It really is a doctrine we need to lay hold of. It's an important doctrine. Now, verse 6 also says that God will judge. It says, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. I love what the commentator Hengstenberg uh, said on this. He says, While the wicked believe that they have the righteous in snares and are now able with little difficulty to destroy them, suddenly a whole load of snares is sent down upon them from heaven, and after all flight is cut off for them, they are smitten by the overpowering judgment of God. He's talking about something that happens in history. Now, it's true, at the end of history, there will be a, a great reversal uh, where God uh, judges his enemies, but even in history, we have seen this, not just in biblical history, but we've seen this in church history. We've seen it in modern history, where God has brought about incredible reversals. In his, he could do it in, in the political scene here. He could do it in any scene that he desires to. Uh, the point is that by the eye of sight, it may seem like we are losing, as if we are in a trap, just like it seemed as if Mordecai and Esther were losing in the book of Esther, but God behind the scenes is working everything together, and by the eye of faith, they were laying claim to God's victory in their lives. And God brought an incredible reversal, and he rained down his coals and his fire of judgment upon them. Now, some people cringe at this, and they say, that's not for New Testament Christians, you know. We ought not to be talking like that. Let's just leave that in the Old Testament. But let me tell you something. You can't have read the New Testament if you say that. Read through the book of Revelation and you will find Christians who glory in God's judgments upon the unrighteous. They delight in that because why? It's a comfort. They know that God is for them when he is against the others. They know that God, in fact, you look at some of the songs that are on the lips of the saints in Revelation, those are far more powerful than the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament. Look at the words that are on the lips of the apostle Paul that he speaks of God's judgments upon those who are resisting the gospel. 
And so what I would say is we need to take seriously the portion of God's hymn book that he included in our Bible for us to sing. We need to sing the imprecatory psalms and pray them before the Lord. You can just kneel on your, beside your bed and just pray them out before the Lord and say, Lord, look at what is happening in uh, Saudi Arabia. Look at what is happening in Sudan. Look at what is happening in these different places. I pray, O oh God, by the eye of faith, I see your, 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 your snares. I see the coals of fire. I see the judgments that come from your throne. And I lay claim to those and I bring them, Father, into history on behalf of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his glory. So hopefully you can see how all of these are a tremendous antidote to escapism. There's a lot that we can do by faith if we are laying hold of the things in the unseen. And then finally, David reminds himself that God loves righteousness and he loves the righteous themselves. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Uh, we're many times tempted to escape or bail out because we think that God does not love us or care about our situation. But God loves the righteous too much. He loves righteousness too much to allow evil to triumph forever. And he loves the righteous too much to abandon them. Uh, Christ <clears throat> was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. And when Joseph was sent down into Egypt, it would have been very easy for him to question God and say, God, you've abandoned me. But by the eye of faith, he saw that God loves the righteous. He will not abandon the righteous. And he was able to say to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Okay? It's, it's something for the comfort of our soul and for the advancement of his cause that we have to lay hold of. Now, faith, therefore, is the cure for escapism. But I need to say it's not faith in Christianity. <laughs> I don't have much faith in Christianity nowadays. Uh, it's so weak. It is uh, uh, so polluted. And it's not faith in circumstances. It is faith in God himself. It's the very antithesis of what we're looking at around us. And so when our desire is to see reformation brought to the church, is that possible? Absolutely, yes. By God's power, it is possible. Uh, when we're looking to see changes in our city, changes in culture, is it possible? Not by the eye of sight, but by the eye of faith. It absolutely is. Faith is the cure for escapism. Now, one more point that's not explicitly stated in this chapter, though it's implied here, is that in God's battles, God intends to win. It's not the kind of, uh, of battle, I'm sure there are times where we die and we get wiped out, but it's for the advancement of his cause and the ultimate triumph of his cause that we do it. And the way some people look at spiritual battles, they're looking at it as if it's a spiritual Vietnam or a spiritual Korea where we hold the line, but we never win the battle. And I don't believe that that is true. General Douglas MacArthur, <clears throat> on a number of occasions, said there is no substitute for victory. And I think God believes the same thing, <clears throat> that there is no substitute for, <clears throat> for victory. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight. And I've mentioned this to you before. What is a good fight? Is it a fight you lose or a fight you win? I don't know anybody who's been in a fight who thinks, well, that was a good fight, <laughs> that lost. <laughs> Fight the good fight is a fight you're going to win, right? And uh, there are too many people who are trying to hold the line on sin and they keep falling. Why? Because their goal is not to win against the sin. 
Their goal is to hold the line as long as they can, and they muddle and they fool around with sin at the, the line. In fact, they don't even think that they can go over the border into the spiritual China, as it were, and go to the source, which is what General Douglas MacArthur wanted to do. They've had theologians tell them, no, no, you can't go over the border. You can't go after the source of sin. And God says, no, I want you. In fact, I command you to be overcomers. Our job is not to hold the line on sin and just sin a little bit. Our job is to conquer sin completely, totally. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't have to be a super saint. He says you just have to be a Christian. You have to believe that he's the Son of God and you can have the faith that can give you the victory and overcome. He is guaranteed. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so whether our battle is with the world, the flesh, or the devil, we have no option of bailing out, nor do we have the option of half-heartedly holding the line like they did in Vietnam. He has commanded us to conquer, and so that needs to be our goal. Uh, it needs to be our confidence, and it needs to be our enabling. And so when Satan tempts you next time to, oh, I just got to give in, or to bail out, you need to respond to Satan, no, absolutely no. Verse 1, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee? May that be the response of each one here this morning. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the encouragement of this psalm. We are so, so prone to looking with the eye of sight, whether it's dealing with our sins or dealing with our culture, whatever it may be. Forgive us for that, Father. You have called us to live not by sight, but by faith. Help us by faith to lay claim to the promises of Scripture, to have such authority in prayer that we overcome demons, that we overcome the obstacles that are around us. You have said to those who are overcomers that you give the right to wield that rod of iron that are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an awesome privilege that is given to us in Revelation 2. Father, I pray that we may use it wisely and that we may use it for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. It is you we want to please, you that we want to serve, and I pray that you would sanctify this, your congregation, stir up their hearts, encourage them, and help them never again to give up, to give in, but to conquer in Christ Jesus. We pray in Christ, his name. Amen. <clears throat>